Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Hey everyone, it's Reed. Before we get started, I've asked you before and I want to ask you again, join the union.us. This is the single most effective way that you can help us ensure that every last pro-democracy voter gets to the polls this November. Join the union.us. Join more than 60,000 of your fellow Americans and more than 70 organizations from around the country dedicated to fighting for our democracy. Go to jointheunion.us and get involved. And now, on with the show. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm once again joined by Trig Olson, Senior Advisor to The Lincoln Project and President of Viking Strategies, LLC. Washington, D.C.-based public affairs and political consulting firm. Trigvi, welcome back. Thanks, Reed. I'm also joined again by Jeff Timmer, senior advisor to the Lincoln Project, former executive director of the Michigan Republican Party, and host of A Republic, If You Can Keep It, available wherever fine podcasts are found. Jeff, good to have you back. I am glad to be here. All right, guys. So this is the third time we've done this in as many months. When this drops, we'll be four weeks out. 28 days away from election day. You know, I was in Florida in 2000 for the recount for five weeks. And I said, I'll never see anything more insane than that five weeks. And literally every election cycle since then has been more insane. And this, I think, caps it off, guys. You know, here we are. We've got the Dobbs decision. We've got the land war in Europe. We've got inflation for the first time in 40 years. We've got an economy that some days wants to feel good about itself and some days doesn't want to feel good about itself. We have one major political party, our former political party, that is now in the thrall of an authoritarian strongman with now plenty of acolytes who are going even further into the abyss than I don't know that I could imagine, but I'm always surprised and maybe I shouldn't be. And so here we are. This is, you know, with a month to go. You know, Trigby, you and I talked about this a little while ago. It's just really hard to figure out what the heck's going to happen. It's a strange question. Are there tipping points or things that we'll look back on and say they were tipping points in our politics that we missed or were more important than we think they were? And there's part of me that thinks, you know, clearly January 6th has the potential to be a tipping point and where we go. And maybe it didn't end up being the tipping point that we all thought it would be. You know, all of us were sitting around thinking this is when the Republicans finally give up Trump. I think if you look at the way this cycle was unfolding and, you know, this show is interesting because we have all three of us talking about it over an extended period of time. But I think how big a tipping point Dobbs ended up being, not even so much about the issue in question, although that certainly mattered, but I think much more about how Americans saw that decision and the overturning of something that was established for their entire lifetimes or the lifetimes of most of them may end up being a far bigger tipping point than we even realized that it would be. 
And so being that close to what is a potential tipping point of that size and scope sometimes makes understanding what's happening in the immediacy of now hard to see without the bigger frame of reference of time. Well, Jeff, we know that, and we might have mentioned this when you and I spoke last, that you know, three times in the last 120-some years that a first-term president has picked up seats in his first midterm election. You know, the Democrats, for the most part, their candidates, maybe not always our favorite flavor, but they're normal. These are normal people. These are normal people running for office with some level of conviction and a desire for public service. They're looking forward. They're speaking to the needs and wants of either their constituents or their potential constituents. And then the Republicans are almost to a person insane. Think about this. I was talking to somebody about this earlier today. Think about this idea, and I don't think this is going to happen, but think about the idea, Jeff, of the world we're living in where Blake Masters, Adam Laxalt, J.D. Vance, Dr. Oz, and Herschel Walker, 28 days from today, could all be elected to the United States Senate. And on January 3rd, would take seats in the greatest deliberative body humanity's ever known. I'm trying to think of the name of that show that was on MTV where they had all these strange characters living in a house together. The real world. The real world. Real world, right. That's where Sean Duffy <laughs> came from. That sounds more like a cast that you would real world. Let's put these kooks together and see what happens. And you're right. They could be making up 10% of the Republican caucus come January. And it's really not that far-fetched that all of them could get elected, despite what would have normally been an implosion of a campaign, Herschel Walker, soldiers on, and the, all the establishment Republicans are coming to his defense. The kinds of people that privately like to say that, oh, we don't like Donald Trump and the MAGAs, and this would be a perfect opportunity to cut bait, but it just exposes that principle doesn't matter, only status and power does. It really is frightening when you look at those candidates, the candidates who are nominees for governor nominees for other statewide offices like Secretary of State and Attorney General. You know, it's like they look like, for the most part, normal humans, and then they kind of peel back the mask and they're like these crazy, insane lizard aliens, and then they peel back the mask again and they're these malignant clowns. So it's V and it, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, Remember V from the 80s, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And the red outfits and the, they right, rip the face right. off and the lady eats the rabbit. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so most people don't live and breathe and eat politics the way that we do or the way that many of our listeners might. They're more concerned about who wins the mass singer than who wins the race for governor. But in a normal time, isn't that okay? In a normal time. It is, right, because you can assume that whether or not you agree with their policy positions or their ideology, they're going to fit within a mainstream. Whether they're Republicans or Democrats, they're going to be okay. And that's why I look at, like you mentioned, the Democrat nominees, they're okay. They're normal. They're normal Democrats. The Republicans are abnormal. But both sides are being cast through this prism of normalcy when they shouldn't be. To me, it's a question of are they serious or are they unserious? And I've said this before, but we had the luxury as Americans for about 30 years from the end of the Cold War up until probably 9-11 or the financial crisis, but for a pretty long time and even through those to really kind of take a step away from history and to use the words of Billy Joel, you know, the fire's always been burning since the world's been turning, but it didn't really seem like that here. And now we have a lot of serious stuff happening because we've sort of taken a break from that and We've got a lot of people who aren't serious. And during 
the Cold War, when everybody recognized we had the potential for nuclear Armageddon, there was a level of seriousness that we had to have in our politicians. We've completely gotten away from that. We are electing people who aren't serious. And to use the real world analogy, if you'd have been watching the real world San Francisco back in 93, which all of us were in college, who'd have thought that Rachel Campos would end up being the craziest one of the bunch? But even the fact that any of those people would be considered serious and have a platform on TV to opine about stuff like, you know, taking Vladimir Putin's side or why J.D. Vance is a man of hillbilly logic is not serious. And that's the problem the Republican Party has. There's a desire amongst a lot of their electorate who generally actually think their lives are better than most, but they think the world's burning down. It's just not serious. You talk about the unserious nature. I want to segue into somebody who's unserious. So there's a guy named Tommy Tuberville who was elected to the United States Senate from Alabama in 2020, whose only prerequisite for the job was being a college football coach and being a reasonably successful college football coach in the Southeastern Conference. But this past weekend at a rally for Donald Trump, Tommy Tuberville sort of let his full like boss hog, Bull Connor, George Wallace come out. Rob, why don't we go ahead and play that clip? Some people say, well, they're soft on crime. No, they're not soft on crime. They're pro-crime. They want crime. They want crime because they want to take over what you got. They want to control what you have. They want reparation because they think the people that do the crime are owed that. Bullshit. They are not owed that. Okay, so Jeff, we make noise about dog whistles, noise about bullhorns, right? They're not using a dog whistle or using bullhorn. This is an, I'm going to steal this from Tom Nichols. This is an air raid siren. They're literally coming for you. They're coming to take what you have. They're coming to carry your teenage daughters off into the dark, and we shouldn't pay them reparations because they're the people that do the crime. I mean, Jeff, the only thing missing is the N-word itself. It's there. It's there through everything he says. It is the most vile, overt form of racism, and it's being normalized. And as one example, none of the Republicans are distancing themselves from it. The racism that has always lurked in the corners of the Republican Party for the last 55, 60 years, it is safe to come out into the light and embrace it with that bullhorn like Tommy Tuberville did there. And this is just the beginning. We're going to see more and more of this. Whether they win or lose these races on November 8th, if they lose, they're not going to sit back and think, boy, what could we have done differently? Maybe we've got the wrong. They're going to double down on everything they're doing. They're going to do more of it in 2024. And I think the racial divide, the thinly veiled calls to violence are going to become louder and more clear and more distinct. So, I mean, Trigvi, you know, we actually created an ad. It might have been about critical race theory. I don't remember what it featured. Lee Atwater, who was George H.W. Bush's campaign manager in 1988, had come up through college Republicans. Remember, he and Carl were bosom buddies back then. My dad actually worked with him. And Lee was from South Carolina, remember? And, and he has that video says, you know, in the 50s, you could say N-word, but he actually says the word. In the 60s, you can't do that. So you have to say busing. In the 70s, you got to say this. In the 80s, it's welfare queens. Now it's critical race theory, reparations. But, you know, I feel like every two years come October, Trigvi, it's at the Republican National Committee. You know what it is? Time to scare the white people. 
Yeah. I mean, you know, it's hard for me as a guy who grew up in Wisconsin to fully grasp. I mean, I remember the first time I was sent down for a campaign to South Carolina in the Deep South, uh, even understand that because it just isn't something that's on my radar screen. When I saw Tuberville, just what got me about that is his claim to fame is he was a football coach at Auburn, right? Like, think about what a football locker room, it's a complete meritocracy. And the idea that somebody is supposed to be a role model who probably spent a lot of time in African-American homes looking parents in the eye and saying, I want your son to come to Auburn and be a part of what we're building, tradition, all the rest of it. I mean, what a fraud. It says so much about who he is as a human being, and he's a disgusting, vile piece of shit based on what I can see. But at the end of the day, what I've thought as I've been watching some of that unfold is the person who understands it and is 100% right is Stuart when he goes back and says it's the original sin. Right. You know, race relations in particular with African-Americans and the descendants of slaves is the one wound that has never fully healed, either naturally but more often than not, when proactive attempts have been made, as three middle-aged white guys sit here and talk about it, to help tend to that wound, there's never any shortage of people, and they have been predominantly Republicans, although the Democratic Party was the party of segregation for many years, to actively rip those sutures out, pour salt in those wounds, and make hay of them for political gain You know, in the suburbs, right? Because it all comes down to what is it I have to do? And Jeff, I think also is, don't you think that when it comes to what Tuberville said and race as it is that trump card, both pun intended and unintended, which is, you know, when they feel like they're in trouble, there's two things they're going to come back to race and Hillary Clinton. Yeah. I was thinking of how many times over the years, and I'll use Michigan as an example, where the city of Detroit is the largest black city outside of the South in the U.S. And a basic refrain of Republican campaigns over the last five decades has been Detroit versus the suburbs. It's always been about Detroit is getting this and it's costing you. It's always framed in terms of economic or fiscal responsibility or waste in government or mismanagement in government, but it always is the race card that has been played. The way that Tuberville just laid it bare there, like it was 1957 all over again, that's the kind of rhetoric that has been pushed back into the dark recesses of our politics. You don't hear any condemnation coming from Tuberville's colleagues in the Senate or on Capitol Hill. You won't. They didn't even see it as something they needed to distance themselves from. They know that's what their supporters want to hear. It says just as much about the people who are leading the Republican Party right now as it does about the voters of the Republican Party. So not to leave that stage, not to be outdone, Marjorie Taylor Greene, congresswoman from Georgia, said that there are five million of them crossing the border, coming to take your jobs. We know that this isn't true. If you are a mid-level professional at a company where you make okay money, maybe you don't love the job, but not everybody loves their job, but you get to work from home three days a week. The idea that you're legitimately concerned about a Venezuelan migrant seeking asylum, taking your job, is pretty far-fetched. That's not going to happen. But again, Jeff, it's the same thing, which is they're coming here, they're coming to take your jobs. You know, and then she gets into this whole great replacement theory, right? They want to replace you. This is 
a strategy to change the conversation because they've lost traction with the narrative of the election. And it's one thing that I think Republicans have historically been better at. I think we know that from our involvement in campaigns, we've been really good as Republicans at setting the topic of conversation. You know, let me throw out crime and race relations. Everybody discuss immigration and a porous border and taking your jobs. Everybody discuss. And historically, we've been able to count on the Democrats to take that bait. The reason the narrative in this election has changed, the reason that the wind has changed and is no longer blowing at the Republicans' back, it's not that the perceptions of the economy or inflation have changed. It's that other things have been talked about and they matter as much or more, and that is people's individual rights, the rights of women, the rights of women to control their bodies. And if the Democrats get off talking about that and they just respond on race and crime, then they're in a losing position. They're fighting uphill with the Republicans having the the advantage of the high ground, and they can't fall for that. It's not that these things aren't incredulous or that we shouldn't be outraged when we hear them, but we shouldn't change the tone, the messaging that has gotten the pro-democracy forces represented by Democratic candidates to this point in early October. And it's interesting that, Trigby, you know, last month, House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy and Marjorie Taylor Greene famously tried to roll out this commitment to America, I think that's what they called it, which they stuck with for approximately 72 hours before they shelved it, never to be heard from again, right? They were like, oh God, and I think this is probably now to bring it all together, guys, we see this, which is sometime in July or August, McCarthy and all the House Republicans got polling back that showed Soft Republicans and independents in the suburbs were doing one of two things. They were going to vote for the Democrat or they were staying home. So what's the biggest issue? Well, I don't really know what the Republican Party believes in. Okay, so we got to give them something to believe in. And then it turned out like, you know, being on camera long enough, right? It doesn't hide. It reveals everything, which is they tried this and it turns out that the base of the Republican Party doesn't care about any of that shit, right? So they're like, well, I guess we'll go back to the old standby. Well, I mean, that whole thing, it's funny you bring it up, right? Because we kind of blew up their announcement and they had to delay it because the Lincoln Project had somebody from Kevin McCarthy's own world that passed along what they were going to do. So we did an ad because basically Joe Biden is doing 90% of what they were claiming they were going to do. But yeah, I mean, the Republican Party is like the empire in Star Wars, right? Like they just have nothing left. And so, you know, they're just grappling around and taking whatever they can. And it's all about division and not serious. And the irony of that is I saw a former colleague of mine in Republican politics who's on TV quite a bit. And he was talking about Biden being weak, Scott Jennings. And James Carville just took him apart. And I thought nothing is more rich. And uh, I'll say this in this form too, since I said it on Twitter, nothing is more rich than somebody as part of the team that adopted a strategy of we're going to have the coalition without the insanity as a good strategy, opining that Biden is weak, particularly on something like Russia, because Joe Biden has led the free world to stand together. I mean, for Christ's sakes, Finland and Sweden joined NATO in part because of Putin, but in part because Joe Biden and America was leading. Like, they just have nothing. And even the ones who are relatively serious people who you might disagree with, and I would say Scott's somebody I disagree with. It's not that he's not a smart person, and he's certainly a good father and human being, but like, they're willing to just say anything. 
But are they? Are they good human beings? Because I'm, I'm having a harder time believing that. If you're willing to carry the flag for something you know is fundamentally wrong, even if you do it in a suit and tie on TV, in the form of a person that we feel like we used to know, are you a good person? Because I'm having a hard time and I'm leaning towards no. I see this as pretty black and white. Stewart said it the other day, right? You know, they used to have this saying in, in Germany. If you have one Nazi at the table and nine more people sit down, you got 10 Nazis at the table. Yeah, I've said many times on podcasts, interviews, on Twitter, I think that most of the people I've known in Republican circles, I would characterize them the way Trick did Scott. They're not bad people, but they have lost their way or they're afraid, which ultimately running parallel to bad people makes you bad people at some point. I still think there are some within the Republican Party or people like Scott Jennings who I don't believe are beyond redemption. There are some who, who are beyond that. They are so far down the rabbit hole. They're not just mouthing talking points. They believe the bullshit. I mean, you're right. I've become much more black and white about this. There are things that are right and there are things that are wrong. You know, two years ago, we would have criticized Adam Kinzinger and Liz Cheney. They voted for Trump in November of 2020, but they've seen the light. I welcome converts. I welcome anybody who's willing to fight against authoritarianism for the preservation of our American experiment. And so I think there are people who are, who are redeemable. They just have to be shown a path or hit whatever it is that's going to cause their breaking point. I mean, breaking through the authoritarian cult uh, mentality, most people are going along with this because they don't know anything else. And they're afraid. Uh, they're afraid for their business. Uh, they're afraid for their income, their social status. Their sense of being is all identified with this Republican politics and Republican power, and they can't escape those trappings. Honestly, like there's part of me that feels like it's inexcusable that they're not willing to stand up and say this is wrong. I mean, think about the people in Russia who know it's wrong who are standing up, right? Well, they aren't under nearly the amount of threat or the Ukrainians who are saying this is wrong and are standing up. But it does get to, you know, there was something recently that piqued my mind back to our days in Park City. And I, as you were saying that, Rita, I was thinking, remember, we sat in your house one day in maybe October and had this long conversation about who's redeemable and who is irredeemable. And, and in truth, you know, I was thinking as Jeff was talking, I'll admit you were right. There were a lot more of them who were irredeemable than I imagined. But we have to ask ourselves, are people redeemable or are they irredeemable? And a lot of them are ending up showing themselves to be like Tommy Tuberville, who's clearly irredeemable. You know, we look at the leaders, right? There's Trump. And then you sort of draw a line and then there's everybody else. And I put them into two broad categories. There's the cynics and the true believers. And, you know, I put in the true believer category, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Carrie Lake, who I think has the passion of the convert, right? I don't think she started that way, but she has now gone full in Doug Mastriano in Pennsylvania and maybe even Tuberville. And then you have the cynics, McConnell, McCarthy, Tim Michaels, Blake Masters, J.D. Vance. Ted Cruz, at least Stefanik, like they all know better, but this is the game. This is the game they're going to play. And this is not new, right? Our, our listeners have heard this a lot, but now we're coming here with four weeks to go where, you know, we're through the looking glass here, guys, which is knowing everything we've just said, this shouldn't be close, but it is. Yeah, and it's scarily close in places like Arizona, Nevada, Wisconsin, 
the Pennsylvania Senate race, where all the evidence says these races should be at the point of being off the table, that Katie Hobbs should be destroying Carrie Lake. Carrie Lake is really nothing more than Marjorie Taylor Greene, who people in polite society look at Marjorie Taylor Greene and say, oh, she's just one of the bad ones. But Carrie Lake could be the governor of a pivotal state in the 2024 presidential election map. She could, by winning, be on the ticket with Donald Trump in 2024. I think she will. That's my early prediction. Yeah, and she is as belligerently ignorant and crazy and dangerous as a Marjorie Taylor Greene in somebody like Tudor Dixon. Maybe she doesn't have that same belligerence, pugnacious nature about her, but she's just as dangerous and crazy. And, you know, there's been polls all over the place. Uh, the CBS poll has that race within five points with Whitmer and Dixon. That's one that people are starting to feel very comfortable about. It's one that I I would rather be the Whitmer than Dixon, but it's still not put away yet. Despite the fact they have no money, in most of these cases, the Republicans are underfunded. Well, that's the thing. They're not running campaigns, Jeff. None of them. Look, I'm listening to this book. It's called Strategy, A History by Lawrence Friedman. I've read that book. And it's 400 hours long or something, right? And one of the last chapters I was just listening to talks a lot about paradigms, right? The paradigms take a long time to build up. Call it a conventional wisdom, too. Same sort of idea. But when they break, a lot of times people can't account for it because it's like, well, this is all I've ever known. But the paradigm, not only of the Republican Party, of American politics, but also of campaigns, as three guys who've worked on more campaigns than we can count, is Donald Trump ran the shittiest two presidential campaigns in modern American history. He won the first and almost won the second. Doug Mastriano has run almost no campaign. Kathy Barnett, before him in Pennsylvania in the Senate race there, in the Senate primary, didn't run a campaign, got 27%, would have probably won but for all of the forces arrayed against her in that last couple of weeks. J.D. Vance hasn't run a campaign. Blake Masters has barely run a campaign. Carrie Lake was up with her first ad for like $52,000 behind it or something, right? And that's not to say that outside groups haven't taken on the majority of the sort of heavy lifting when it comes to paid media television time. But Doug Mastriano doesn't talk to the press, right? He has goons surrounding him, so he doesn't have to talk to the media. I mean, it's this sort of weird, bizarro front porch campaign where I'm just going to go out and say the craziest ass things I can. And it gets to my people through all of the underground sewer system that is the radical right ecosystem. And then the media not knowing what to do because their paradigm is broken where you had to get both sides of every story. But by doing that, now look, Carrie Lake was on Face the Nation this weekend. You give her a national platform to espouse her crazy-ass views. Why? Well, we had Katie Hobbs on. Yeah, but Katie Hobbs is telling the truth, right? Whether you like it or not, Carrie Lake trucks in nothing but falsehoods. Even Trump says, Carrie Lake says 2020 was stolen. She says it more than anybody. Sometimes I'm even surprised by it. For years, it was said that, you know, Republicans fall into line. Republicans were a hierarchical party. They behaved hierarchically. Whoever was supposed to win the nomination typically won the nomination. Everybody fell into line. That's something that Donald Trump has broken and broken irreparably. He's democratized access to the ballot box for these crazy Republican candidates who have no organization, no supporters, no donors. What they have is this right-wing ecosystem 
that has replaced all of that and propelled these people to the point where they might still win without any of the traditional. And we're not just talking about what people thought you should have in campaigns, but the ability to communicate your message required having an organization and having money. Now it doesn't. You've got this willing built-in megaphone through the right-wing outrage culture that will, I guess, become the surrogate for those things that campaigns used to have to have, which was the ability to attract support. So when I look at the landscape, like Whitmer Tudor Dixon is a good example. Tudor Dixon's saying shit that's just as crazy as what Kerry Lake is saying. But Gretchen Whitmer is in a really good position to beat her because Gretchen Whitmer has run a great campaign in which she's pivoted to the center and is speaking to be governor of Michigan, to represent the center and common sense and economic prosperity and all kinds of things like that, right? Like she has run a campaign that, quite frankly, is the same campaign that years ago John Engler or Tommy Thompson in Wisconsin ran. And it was about winning over people, converts, whether they're independents or people on the Bannon line in contrasting with Tudor Dixon's crazy by putting out there, here's what I'm doing to make life better for people, right? Where Democrats are running into problems is where you've got Carrie Lake saying crazy stuff and Katie Hobbs responding to it and getting dragged into that rather than presenting a compelling vision for those people who sit in the center. So best I can tell, a lot of what the Hobbs campaign has been doing to date is basically trying to go at Lake as crazy and countering it with not stuff that people in the center care about, but defending her side when Carrie Lake is saying crazy shit about her side. So at the end of the day, you know, to beat these guys, you have to give a compelling narrative that convinces those people that sit on the band line and that sit in the middle why all of these falsehoods that people like Tuberville or Carrie Lake or Tudor Dixon are putting out there is balderdash. And it's, as you say all the time, Reed, it's a game of small numbers. Like, that's what it is. I mean, I just think about it in Wisconsin. We lived this. Like, abolish the police was going to take Biden down in 2020 in that state. And we went and made it a referendum on Trump's crazy with the people who were bleeding back. All right. So, guys, let's talk about how we see the next four weeks. So, Jeff, first, give me What's concerning you? And then what gives you hope? What's concerning me most is the top of the ticket races and those races for governor in the existential states. None of them are out of the woods. Michigan and Pennsylvania look to be in the best position with Shapiro and Whitmer running very solid grade A campaigns. Evers in Wisconsin, Sisolak in Nevada and Katie Hobbs in Arizona, those races are all close. There's more polls showing the Democrats behind in those states than there are polls showing them ahead. That makes me nervous because this isn't just a case of, boy, if the pro-democracy side wins three out of those five, it's going to be a good night. Because if two of those states go to the insurrection side, the election denier side, who have said they're going to put their thumb on the scale in 2024, we can't have a free and fair national election. No, and in fact, at that Vegas rally, the guy running for Secretary of State in Nevada said, me and Mike, Secretaries of State, are going to make sure Donald Trump is president in 2024. They say it out loud. Say it right out loud. All of these races are still far too close. 
were actually ahead of the incumbents in some of these cases, like Evers and like the governor in Nevada, who are trailing the Republicans in many of the polls. And so what gives me hope is as much as the polling in the last couple of election cycles has been characterized as undercounting the Republican support, the quiet Trump support that existed in 2020 that wasn't reflected in the polls, I think there's just as much evidence now that we've seen since the Dobbs decision that says there's the possibility that the number of women, younger voters, people who are energized by the overturning of Roe, I think that has as much chance to make these polling misses. We're also in the Democrats clean the clock on those five governor's races. And if they do so, they're going to win the down-ballot secretary of state races and the races for attorney general in those states and probably carry across a lot of others like Mark Kelly or Cortez Masto in Nevada or Mandela Barnes. And so democracy could have a really good night because the polls aren't actually calibrated to reflect the level of intensity on the pro-democracy in among voters on the left. All right, Trigby, what's worrying you and what looks up for you? So I agree with Jeff completely on the existential states. I actually am slightly more bullish than I've been in the past about what Tony Evers is doing. You know, he's tied with Michaels and that race is going to be incredibly close, but I think Evers is in a pretty good spot given how fickle that state is, but it's going to be really close. You know, Nevada and Arizona are a little more problematic. I think, you know, Mark Kelly has run a great campaign, a lot like Gretchen Whitmer has done. What I worry most about in some ways is expectations and what that means going forward. I was saying to a reporter recently who was like, well, this election's a tipping point. And I said, no, the election itself is not a tipping point. What's going to be the tipping point is what happens as a result of the elections, right? Like, so, you know, who's Speaker of the House and what does the Senate look like? You know, as Democrats have gone from what looked like a really bad year to kind of an even playing field in a year that shouldn't be even, you know, you're starting to get to the point where sometimes I end up seeing a lot of crazy talk. Oh, we're going to win, you know, all these various places and we can take the house by a lot. It's still super close. I mean, it's not a given that Democrats are going to take the Senate. Should they be able to take the Senate? Absolutely. But it's not a foregone conclusion. The House is still probably leans more likely Republicans win than Democrats, but Democrats certainly aren't looking at a train wreck of being down 30 seats. They could end up with a majority. So I do worry the expectations and what happens in that post-election outcome and what that means for really the day that is the day that matters on whether our democracy survives or not, which is January 20th, 2025 at noon. That's what I worry about. This is a topic for another show, but I guess another thing that scares me is there's enough of these races that are going to be close. And it won't matter if they're close, given who's involved in them, that what what begins on November 9th, even what we saw after uh, November in 2020, you know, up through January 6th and Biden's inauguration, I still don't think we're prepared for the level of crazy that we're going to see after this election, as we should be. It's going to be more. It's going to be louder. It's going to be more people involved systematically trying to turn losses into apparent wins to keep the outrage going as we head into 2024. But Jeff, I think this is a concern not only for the coming 
election, but also future elections, which is we should not assume that when one side with Proud Boys, Boogaloo Boys, Three Percenters, Oath Keepers and all that, if they take to the streets in earnest, there might be a reaction to that. And that's one where, you know, if we're talking about things that worry me is that Trigby talks about tipping points. The last thing any of us want is a Lexington and Concord, right? The shot heard around the world. You just don't know where it's going to come from. And once that happens, things unravel, hopefully in the most minimal way possible, but we should not assume anything. I mean, Jeff, it's a good point. We really haven't talked about it was by this time in 20, there were plenty of operations up and running to ensure that there was ballot integrity, ballot security. Now we know that Steve Bannon's out there. He's recruited 11,000 people to challenge ballots. Now, Doug Mastriano will probably lose, at least knock on wood. I think he'll lose, but he'll make a stink because it's in his nature and it's to his advantage because there's no downside for him, right? He's going to go back to being a state senator or whatever the hell he is. What does give me hope is that there are a lot of people that we deal with, you know, whether or not it's with the union work we do, join the union.us, go to it now and sign up with the dozens, if not hundreds of groups that we talk to on an almost daily basis. I should say that our team talks to, I don't talk to as many of them as I'd like, that there are people out there that are dedicated to this, that there are a lot of people on the pro-democracy side who said, okay, we don't agree on a lot policy-wise. Let's get back to a place where we can disagree. But for the now and for the foreseeable future, this is the fight. This is the fight. And we got four weeks, gang, to make sure we get it done. We can't leave any vote uncast. We can't leave any door unknocked. We can't leave any phone uncalled or texted to. This is the time we got to do it. As we've seen, money is a great asset, maybe the best asset in campaigns. But when it comes down to it, the men and women who are going to go out and knock on those doors, who are going to make those calls, who are going to drop that literature, who are going to talk to those voters who haven't made a decision about something, they're the ones who are going to help us win when the time comes. All right. Before I let you go, Trigvi, where can we find you online? People can find me on Twitter at Trigvi, T-R-Y-G-V-E Olson, O-L-S-O-N. And Jeff, how about you? I am at Jeff Timmer on Twitter. And Jeff, also tell us a little bit about your podcast. I do a podcast with a co-host uh, who chaired the Michigan Democratic Party for nearly 20 years. I ran the Republican Party. He ran the Democratic Party. We've now gone from foes into allies to help protect democracy. And we have state and national guests. It's a good listen. That's right. So everybody, tune in. A Republic, if you can keep it. As always, gang, you can find me on Twitter, at Reed Galen, or on Instagram, at Reed underscore Galen underscore LP. Jeff Trigby, as always, want to thank you for joining me and everybody else. We'll see you next time. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter, at Project Lincoln, and for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. If you want to message the podcast directly, please send an email to podcast at lincolnproject.us. And if you want to personally join the fight to save our nation's democracy, visit jointheunion.us. Also, be sure to check out our growing LPTV lineup, including The Breakdown with Tara Setmayer and Rick Wilson, 
which airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 7 p.m. Eastern. We're speaking with Lisa Senecal and Maya May, which airs Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern, and Lunch with Lincoln, which airs every Monday at noon Eastern. Plus, we'd love you to check out our newest show, The Game We're In, with Maya May and Trigby Olson, which airs Mondays at 7 p.m. Eastern. All shows you can stream live on the Lincoln Project's YouTube, Facebook, or Twitter feeds. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. I'll see you on the next episode. Thank you.